What is this guy saying? He's, he's a monster. <laughs> Welcome. Well, from Alpha from Alpha to Omega. To Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 25th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 9th of February 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is sponsored by the kind gentlemen Michael T and Brandon F. Last week's episode with Philip Pilkington got featured as an article over at Naked Capitalism, which helped drive a lot of new listeners to the show. Special thanks to those readers like Glenn C and Paul T who left such kind comments about the show. If you know of other sites that might be interested in today's or any other episodes, any assistance that could help grow the podcast audience would be very much appreciated. As would bequeathing your great aunt's fur coat by clicking on the donate button on the podcast website. I was also interviewed last week for the most recent episode of Douglas Lane's Diet Soap podcast, where we talked of Marx, Keynes and money. You can find me blathering over at douglaslane.com. To receive non-stop Alpha, Omega and other Greek-related tidbits, you can follow the show on Twitter or over on Facebook. Today's guest is Ugo Bardi, Professor of Physical Chemistry at the University of Florence. He specialises in resource depletion, system dynamics modelling, climate science and renewable energy. He is also a member of the Scientific Committee of the Association for the Study of Peak Oil and Gas, or ASPO, and a frequent contributor to the Oil Drum, the best energy blog on the web. He's also the author of several books, including The Limits to Growth Revisited, his upcoming book, Plundering the Planet, and on top of this, he even finds time to write his own excellent blog, Cassandra's Legacy. We join the conversation as the professor explains his newly conceived theory of alien-led resource depletion. We are behaving as if we were aliens trying to plunder the planet, destroy everything and bring everything in another galaxy and then leave, leaving nothing here. It seems that we have been invaded by aliens who are really exploiting the planet into destroying it. Uh, lizards, perhaps. You know, President Obama is a lizard, one of the lizard people. You, you, did you read it? I've seen the pictures. Uh, I don't know if this is the tone you want for the interview. So, Professor, who was Alfred Wegener? Oh, it's an interesting question. was a great geologist, the first who proposed the theory of the movement, of the continental movements over geological eras, which was the initial point of a revolution in geology that is still ongoing today. And Alfred Wegener was also a polar explorer, one of those uh, uh, scientists who explored the poles, fighting the cold and the hunger, and he was a very interesting person. And, and he was also very creative. He picked up an idea which had been already ongoing for centuries, 
um, the idea that, you know, the continental shapes form some kind of puzzle which you could, if you were to think to get the continent together, you would see that South America and Africa, they click together rather nicely. And also North America and Europe, they could be made to click together to form something that looks like a giant supercontinent. This had already been seen. The great point of Wegener was that he went to see more in detail how it could work and he examined um, the geological record and fossils and they saw there was a continuity. It was not just a physical shape of the continents. There was really a continuity in species, in, in uh, geological uh, forms, which existed um, hundreds of millions of years ago, but it was unmistakable. It was clear there was something there that seemed to indicate that the continent were once joined together and you know this is the point when uh, science becomes creative. Wegener was a very serious scientist. He said I have this interesting idea look there are data supporting it it's not just a curious shape and so this is it. I, I propose that the continents were once joined together say 200 million years ago and then at some moment they separated and they went each one for their own path. And now this is what we see. This is a very interesting story because, of course, everything that happens in science is that you go through an exam, which sometimes is very harsh. And there was also a problem with Wegener because when he proposed this theory a hundred years ago, we were at the beginning of the First World War. and was a German and, and everything that Germans were to say was considered a little bit suspicious. So there was very serious troubles for Wegener's theory. Also because, seriously, they said people were asking why do continents move? What makes them move? Do you have any proof that continents move? And, and Wegener could not say anything about that because he didn't know. But as I said, this was not just a, a weird theory based on some on some intuition there was some there were data good data and that was a point that could not be ignored and eventually the theory the idea Wegener's idea was the birth of modern geology in the sense that it we discovered slowly what makes continent move which is a very fascinating story because it is not casual. It is not just something strange that we don't understand. No, it, the movement of the continents is the basis of everything in Earth sciences because it's the result of the fact that the inside of the Earth is fluid, it moves, and these movements inside the region that we call the mantle, they move in the continents. The continents are rafts which float and while they float, they are moving one, one, in one direction or another. Sometimes they separate and they float away. Sometimes they collide against each other and that creates mountains. This is also the basic point of the theory that tells us that uh, mountains are created by this movement of continents, so that is corrugation that derives from the movement. And not only that, once we got into this kind of plate tectonics, the name of this phenomenon, and we discovered that the movement generates an enormous amount of energy. This energy comes from the hot nucleus of the Earth, which loses energy to space, and this energy is in part used to move continents, and this movement by friction 
generates an enormous amount of energy over geological times. The energy from the center of the Earth, from the inner of the Earth, is very small in comparison to the energy which the Earth receives from the Sun. There is a big difference, a factor of 10,000 or something like that. Biological life is all based on solar energy, but over long periods of time, the Earth's energy, the geological energy, is accumulated and generates phenomena which are fundamental for life. Life could not exist without these movements. So what is the cause of the active nucleus at the centre of the Earth? Why isn't it, say, dormant like the Moon, for example? It is uh, the residual of the hot formation of the Earth from 4 billion years ago. It was a long time ago. And uh, the gravitational energy which uh, resulted from the collisions of this enormous mass that formed the Earth generated a lot of thermal energy. And the whole thing, the planet, was completely molten, as far as we know, about 4 billion years ago. And then it cooled down slowly, but the Earth is very big, and it takes time, so a lot of heat remained stored in the inner parts of the planet. And this is one of the reasons. The other one is the presence of radioactive nuclei decayed and generate heat. And that's another reason, probably just as important, perhaps more important, in keeping the inside of the Earth hot. To a, a normal layperson, the fact that the continents drift slowly across the face of the planet doesn't seem all that important a fact. What part of this process is so important then for life? It's uh, absolutely fundamental because it's one of the main reasons for the existence of volcanoes. Volcanoes are typically generated at continental edges where the movement of the plates, continental plates and oceanic plates, they slide against each other and they generate energy and this energy appears in the form of volcanoes. So if you look at, uh, at the globe, at the map of the, of the Earth, you see that volcanoes are concentrated as edges of continents. You have heard of the, what is called the Ring of Fire, which is an enormous ring of volcanoes which goes around the Pacific Ocean. This is a series of volcanoes which generate events such as the, the, the tsunami in Japan and all the volcanic activity all over the, the ring, the arc of volcanoes, is caused by the movement of the continents. In itself, the volcanoes are spectacular, but the fact molten lava eruption in itself is not generating life, but the gases which are generated by volcanoes are fundamental because our atmosphere is generated by this degassing, outgassing of the inner layers of the Earth. And the fact that our atmosphere, atmosphere contains oxygen and carbon dioxide is uh, there is an interaction of the biosphere, life, and the gases which are erupted from volcanoes. Without volcanoes, uh, the Earth's atmosphere could not have the right composition for life. In particular, it would not contain carbon dioxide, CO2, which is fundamental for life. This could not be because CO2 is a reactive molecule. Without CO2, we could not have photosynthesis, but without photosynthesis, we cannot have life. And photosynthesis does not consume CO2, but an inorganic reaction of CO2 with rock consumes very slowly 
the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So we can calculate that in a period that would go from 100,000 years or maybe a few million years, depends on the assumptions, all the CO2 would be consumed, be left with none for photosynthesis. So if the amount of CO2 were to be fixed, then life would disappear from Earth in about uh, a million years. The life on Earth has been existing for billions of years, so there is something here that doesn't work, unless we assume that there is a source of CO2 which uh, restores the CO2 to the atmosphere, and there is. This is the volcanic activity at the edges, mainly at the edges of continents. And that's a cycle that keeps the ecosphere alive. Without this cycle, without this movement which derives from the heat that comes from the center of the Earth, then there could not be life because we would run out of CO2 in a relatively short time. This cycle self-regulates the temperature on Earth and keeps life ticking along. Does this process form a part or support the Gaia hypothesis? Absolutely, yes. This is very fascinating, interesting, this idea of the Gaia hypothesis of a self-regulating cycle. There have been self-regulating cycles uh, discovered using engineering, biology, many fields. Now, James Lovelock had this uh, very interesting idea. Look, this planet exists, the ecosystem, the system which contains all the forms of life, it exists because the conditions which make it exist, are generated by self-regulating cycles. Uh, Let's call it Gaia. That was a great intuition. It must be said that uh, uh, Lovelock thought that the cycle was only biological. He thought it was mainly sustained by the photosynthesis process, which may be, but in reality, later on, we discovered that the cycle is uh, sustained by non-biological, inorganic process, and the cycle we were discussing before, the cycle of CO2, which is absorbed by the atmosphere to form rock carbonates. Carbonates are washed away to the oceans, they are buried on the bottom of the oceans, and then slowly brought inside the mantle underneath by the movement of cold subduction at the edge of continents, and from there CO2 re-emerges from volcanoes. Now, This is, I think, a great discovery that has not been assimilated in general culture. People normally don't know. It's a very fundamental revolution. It's a basic point of the functioning of our planet, of our ecosystem, the system that makes us live. And the ecosystem works on the basis of this and many other cycles. The ecosystem is in a situation that we call homeostasis. Homeostasis means that uh, the system self-regulates. When you push it a little bit in a direction, it tends to go back to react to the perturbation to return to the initial conditions, which is, by the way, typical of life forms. This summer, Walt Disney Pictures presents a motion picture fantasy adventure beyond your fondest imagination. You'll be transported miraculously back to the enchanted land of Oz, that magical kingdom beloved by young and old for generations. It's just a yellow brick. No, Belina, you don't understand. This was the yellow brick road. You'll share with Dorothy Gale 
The shock of finding everything mysteriously changed. What's happened to everybody? This is the Oz you want to visit again and again. Why don't we just fly back to Kansas? Return to Oz. So, Lovelock had this idea, a system dominated by a self-regulating cycle, or by more than one self-regulating cycle. Such a system has some elements of life. He called it Gaia, the goddess of the earth, which should be taken with caution, because uh, be careful that Gaia is not a goddess, and uh, more than that, she may not be benevolent or merciful. She doesn't care about us, because she's not a human being, not a sentient being, not a goddess. Um, so if we make a mess, we break something, and our responsibility to avoid messing with a system which has been working fine for billions of years. It's like we woke up in a, in a spaceship. In science fiction, there is this plot that somebody wakes up from after having been in hibernation for a hundred years, they wake up and they find themselves inside a spaceship and they don't know how to drive, to maneuver, to manage the spaceship. So they must try, but if they make a mistake, uh, they will crash the spaceship into a star or something like that. So this is something similar to our situ situation. We woke up in this spaceship, which is the Earth, Spaceships have been moving all by itself on autopilot, and now we're going to touch in the steering wheel. Oh, this is a nice button. Let's try to press it. And this is a lever. What, 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 what does it do? Let's pull the lever and see what happens. And it's very, very dangerous because we are interfering with the homeostasis mechanisms of the system. The spaceship have been going on fine for four billion years. Now let's be very, very careful about what we do. So what is the importance of this cycle for all the CO2 we are currently pumping into the atmosphere? Well, we know enough to understand what's going, what's happening, what's going to happen, because there are several cycles which manage the CO2 and they keep the amount in the atmosphere at levels which are good enough for life, never really stable. They go up and they go down. There are period of higher CO2, period of lower CO2, but on the average, the system tends to stabilize the amount of CO2 in such a way that temperature remains within bounds sufficient for life to exist. This regulation is not perfect. And the time constant of the thermostat, which is regulated by the CO2 is of millions of years. If we turn the thermostat by mistake in the wrong direction, the system eventually will bring everything back to the right temperature, but it may take anything from 1 million to 100 million years. So considering that our lifespan as human beings and as civilization also is not more than as human beings we know as a civilization, we don't know, but probably no more than a few centuries. So we can very easily destroy everything because the system does not have the time to react and bring concentrations back level. The good level from our viewpoint, because we have evolved, we are living in a planet with a certain concentration of CO2, and this concentration of CO2 is what gives to the planet a temperature which is reasonably good for us. 
we may live um, with a certain degree of variation, probably one degree plus or minus doesn't do a lot of damage, but the problem is that the perturbation we are creating is enormous. It could very easily bring the temperature higher of a factor of four, five, six, seven more degrees centigrade, and that we would not survive as a civilization, certainly. We would possibly, or perhaps probably not survive as a species. Is there a chance we could break the homeostatic function? We are doing that. We are working hard to destroy the homeostatic system by burning fossil fuels. These fossil fuels were once CO2, which was transformed into organic matter by photosynthesis. And then the, the cycles, the homeostatic system has buried down this material and removed it from the atmosphere um, reducing the temperature. And this system, incidentally, fights against another phenomenon which takes place in the sun, and the sun very slowly increases its temperature over time spans of billions of years. But right now, the sun is about 30% more bright than it was four billion years ago. And it makes slowly a difference. But temperature of the planet has remained more or less constant within bounds sufficient for life to exist. Now we could calculate that if the system were not compensating for the increase in the solar radiation, then uh, the Earth would increase temperature and that would have brought the planet to such condition which would not be able to support life. So the life still exists is because the system compensates. And we also know that since the trend of the sun of increasing temperature, and it will continue through the coming uh, hundreds of millions and billions of years, then eventually in a remote future, then the sun will become so bright that the system will not be able to compensate anymore and the earth will be sterilized. That's going to happen unless we find some esoteric ways to screen the sun radiation or some intelligent civilizations in the future may be able to move the Earth's orbit a little bit farther away from the sun. There has been no need so far because the homeostatic system can compensate, but it will not be possible forever. We are not sure until which point, which brightness of the sun is at the limit of the homeostatic system. If brightness is close to the limit, then a strong perturbation could destroy the homeostasis which means, in practice, that Gaia would be killed. And that could happen. It will happen. We know that it's going to happen, by all means. If nothing happens, no, no intelligent management in the in a remote future, then Gaia will die in a million years. It will become very bright, and the system should be, reduce the CO2 concentration to such a level that plants would not be able to photosynthesize anymore. Or let CO2 increase, but then temperature would increase to such a level that the oceans eventually will boil and the Earth will become uh, another rocky planet with no water, no life, or perhaps small pockets of life underground. So this is a very interesting bet that we are making, that the ecosystem will be able to compensate for the tremendous perturbation that we are causing to it without going out of bounds to the destruction of the ecosystem, the destruction of the whole life on Earth. Well,
Falling out like endless rain into a paper cup They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe Pools of sorrow, waves of joy are drifting through my opened mind Possessing and caressing me Georg Bauer. Uh, Georg Bauer, yes, a German geologist. So he wrote a very interesting book in 16th century, which was All Things Metallic in English, and he was the founder of the modern science of mining. He put on a systematic basis all that was known about mining before him. Mining has been going on for a long time on this planet, long for human standards. The first mines in the modern sense are about 10,000 years old in, in England, mining flintstone for stone tools. And they started already at that time to, to dig holes in the ground, tunnels and go and dig inside. And the, the very word that we have today, mine or mining, probably comes from a Celtic word of the time. And that uh, was a big change in the Earth's ecosystem because it was uh, the first time that uh, an animal species, not a plant, plant have always been mining plants. They insert their roots into the ground. From the ground, they take minerals. They have been doing that on the continental crust for three or four hundred billion years. But the plants have always been recycling everything they were mining. But humans doing things on a much larger scale. About 10,000 years ago, they were doing very small things, a very limited amount of mining, but the problem is that uh, this thing has been increasing at an enormous speed. So there is a direct relation between civilizations and mining. Many civilizations, they started their career, their existence, by exploiting some kind of mine. This is something rather difficult to study because we don't really have quantitative data about how much minerals were mined by the Romans at uh, their time. We know that Romans were in gold from Spain, and there is clear evidence that uh, their prosperity, their ex military expansion, their moment of great uh, picking was linked to the output of these Spanish gold mines because the Romans would pay the soldiers with gold. And there is evidence that uh, the Roman civilization started declining and eventually collapsed together with the declining Spanish gold mines. Mines are depleted, the civilizations disappear. But this was not clear to anyone uh, during this period because the Romans they had no idea what were the mechanisms that formed minerals. You can read this in Tacitus. He writes, uh, gods given us the minerals in some place and the gods didn't want to give minerals to the Germans. It is not by chance that we find mines in some specific places. It is all linked to the geothermal energy. It's again linked to the movement of the continents. It's the same phenomenon that accumulates 
and the concentrated resources, and they very often this happens at the edges of continents, it is a result of the fact that geosphere, the inside of the Earth, is hot and active. This concentration of elements that we call mines or deposits or ores sometimes are the result of energy accumulated over hundreds of millions of years. And so we are mining these resources in hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, so there is no comparison. We are mining at a speed which is enormously faster then the system can uh, rebuild the resources, an enormous difference of scale. So we are running out of deposits, we are depleting the Earth. This is a concept that took a lot of time to be understood. The first quantitative assessments of the amounts of resources came indeed from Georg Bauer, his book, and it was one of the first to say, look, Minerals are there. I don't know who put the minerals there, if it were the gods or some natural factor, but I know that the minerals exist in limited amounts. Once you have taken them out of the mine, the mine will not produce any more mineral. They form in times which are very, very long, so we can consider that the minerals exist in limited amounts. The first discussions from this point arrive in mid-19th century. And the people started saying, in England, say, we are using coal. This coal is so important. It's, it's our empire. The British Empire is built on coal. If we, if we were to run out of coal, it would be very bad. And so, just like now, they were divided into the optimists and the pessimists, Cassandras and the Cornucopians. They would say, well, it's, it's fine, coal is abundant, and then by time it will run out a little, we will have developed new, new sources of energy. Other people say, well, yes, but it is a problem. The first assessment of the depletion as an economic process came from one of the great economists of the 19th century, Stanley William Jevons. He wrote a book, The Coal Question which still today remains a milestone in the economics of limited, non-renewable resources. That's a book, unfortunately, which has not been well understood by everybody. But Jevons, he already had everything clear. It was a perfect description of what was going to happen. And Jevons was, uh, was a genius. These early economists were towering figures, they were fascinating people. And so Jemon said, well, okay, this is a limited amount of something, but it's not just that. Some coal mines are very easy to exploit, cheap to exploit, and a little money and you get a lot of money back. Some coal mines are more difficult because they're deeper, lower quality, and the narrower seams. So, of course, we will first exploit the easy resources, then slowly we will be moving to the more difficult resources. And more difficult means they cost more. If they cost more, it will be harder for us to be so rich as we were before. And eventually, he said, coal will become so expensive that it will not be convenient anymore. At this point, production will go down. He could not say exactly where, when. He said, less than a century, we will find this problem and it would be a difficult moment for British coal and for the British Empire. 1920, we see the British coal production starts having difficulties. Uh, it cannot grow anymore. And from that moment on, it starts declining, and it is still declining today to near zero, having completed a cycle of extraction. There is still coal in England, 
but the speed of extraction depends on the cost and it is very expensive right now to extract core in britain because what is left is not as good as concentrated as pure as it was today i think we have a good and comprehensive theory of what is mining in economic terms it's a, it's a dynamic view of mining which does not just depend on the amounts of a mineral because when you say I still have so much oil for 30 years. Well, it's fine, but you should ask also a second question. Of this oil which is left, how much is it going to cost? That's a problem because it's very clear that uh, now petroleum or crude oil is going through the same process that coal went through in, uh, in England. We're going to see this problem, this big problem of going to be very expensive. There's still oil. Oil is not going to run out anytime soon, but it is going to be very expensive. This is a vision that was systematized for the first time by the book known as The Limits to Growth, which was published in 1972. You've done an updated version of this in the last number of years. I wrote in 2010 a comment and a revision of the book. The book, The Limits to Grow, went through a period of demonization. And in my opinion, the book was an extremely innovative and extremely well done attempt to understand the dynamics of the world's economy as a function of several parameters, including mineral resources. And it was successful within limits. If you look at the results of that first study, almost 50 years afterwards, you see that the prediction they made was almost unbelievable that they could get it so right, despite so many people saying that they were wrong. And they said, what they said is, is our world now. They were describing in, in the scenario that they call the base case, and the most likely one, then in 30, 40, 50 years from now, it will be like that. And it's more or less like this. We haven't run out of resources yet. Of course not. But we're facing one big problem, and the big problem is that mineral resources are costing more and more to mine. Cost not just in monetary terms, but in order to mine resources, you need resources. You cannot mine with bare hands. You have to spend energy, machinery, people, uh, knowledge. And at some point, when you mine minerals, which you use to provide energy, like crude oil, gas, or uranium, then you spend energy to obtain energy. And this is the cr a crucial problem because energy that you get out may become so small that it becomes smaller than the amount of energy that you spent for obtaining it. At that point, it doesn't matter how much mineral you can calculate as it's still existing. It's a lost game. Whatever you do is a lose-lose game. And we are not so far away from that point. We are spending uh, more and more energy to extract oil, to extract gas, to extract coal, and to extract uranium.
So what is the Seneca effect? This is another step in catastrophe uh, because what I was telling you up to now is the results of a relatively simple vision of mining. So you mine, you get something out of the mine, and uh, you take a fraction of the yield of mining to do more mining. You have, a, say, an oil well. It has taken you some oil to dig the well. You use a part of this oil to dig other wells, and so you go, which is fine. At some point, you will need so much oil to get oil that it will be start becoming uh, less convenient and uh, you will not be able to grow anymore and at some moment you will decline and that's the basis of the idea but there is another trick that is not included in this model because you create pollution which you may like to call an externality external cost it's something that costs you because you have to clean up or if you don't clean up you suffer the consequences of your pollution. And that's an extra cost, which is not included in the mining activity itself, but somebody has to pay it. Thinking in terms of civilization, the world's economy, people, whatever you want to call it, then uh, we have to pay the cost of pollution. And this cost of pollution comes back with a vengeance afterwards, because when you start mining, uh, you don't cause so much pollution. Pollution accumulates, and then at some moment you start discovering, oh God, I cannot breathe this air. It's what is happening now in China. You have seen the pictures. It, Beijing is covered in a black cloud coming from coal plants. So it's a cost. You have to clean up suffer the consequences. You reach your best moment. You think you have still coal, you, you are still going on. Then you are hit together by two factors, depletion and pollution. These two factors, collaborate in a sense to destroy you, you find that the decline is much faster than the growth. So the cycle of production of a mineral resource goes through a relatively slow increase and then it goes down very fast and you call it collapse because of the combined effect of pollution and depletion. What are the implications for the economic and production systems caused by this Seneca effect? Seneca was a Roman philosopher living in the second century, and he said this very simple observation, which says that things uh, go bad fast. I've used this uh, idea of Seneca to describe the cycle of mineral extraction. The decline of the output of a mine is normally much faster than the growth, which is observable in several cases. Now, at the civilization level, this is probably something that we will observe too, because we know that our civilization is critically dependent on energy resources, and energy resources are mineral resources in our case. So unless we find a good way to replace mineral resources with renewable resources, then decline will be unavoidable, and it's also unavoidable that the decline will be very fast. If the decline phase, then it will go down very fast. And at that point, we will just not even know what has hit us because we will see that everything collapses, goes down very quickly. And so we need to work right now because we are not yet arrived to that phase. We need to work now to replace these sources because these sources, these non-renewable sources, mineral resources, they are very dangerous because you don't understand that you are going to be hit by this Seneca effect. There are historical phases of this. 
I, I have a very good example, which is the sturgeon fishing in the Caspian Sea, you know, the source of caviar. The amount of sturgeon in the Caspian Sea was limited. And what happens, uh, that, that, that market for caviar was so good that the people just didn't think that, that the source was limited. They went there and said, we fish as much as we can and we sell the, the caviar on the market. And then what this, you see is a fantastic effect that you see that grows, 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 and then bang, it goes down. Almost no more sturgeon in the sea in a few years. So you see, it is very dangerous. We are playing with things so that can explode literally in our hands. What is your hope for systemic change then, given that most of the power lies with those people who benefit from the current system? Well, the hope is that, uh, you see, one problem um, with the people who have a lot of money and they still, they, they don't have realized that they live in the same planet, on the same planet where we all live. And so they will be affected by the destruction of the ecosystem as much as anyone else. So you can be very rich, but if the ecosystem collapses and everybody dies, then, um, then you, it doesn't help you much. To be so rich, maybe you can build yourself an ark, but uh, I think uh, I think it's easier for all the people who have this kind of clout to realize that uh, they should do something because their ecosystem sustains us all. So there is, I think, we have a very good hopes to solve the problem. I mean, it's not it's not a great problem actually. We became addicted to non-renewable resources. So this is the problem because non-renewable resources, as I said, are a very dangerous story. As you start using a non-renewable resource, you become addicted and you think it will last forever, then bang, it, it comes down and you're taken by surprise. We have a chance, we have a fighting chance, but we must replace non-renewable resources with renewable resources. And that's, that's the only way we have. There is no other way to keep going in a way or another, we'll have to make sacrifices. It will not be the same world as it was before. We have to change, but there is no other way. We can keep going by being very clever. We could still keep using the mineral resources we are using now for 10 years, 20, 50, maybe, maybe a century if you are very good, but then we're going into the limits of the system. So now we still have resources that we must use to build a new, different and new world based on renewable resources. Renewable may mean just agriculture. After all, our ancestors have lived on agriculture for 10,000 years. It may mean renewable energy producing technologies like photovoltaics, like um, solar radiation systems, wind systems. This would be interesting because it could give us electric power, which is something It's a very nice thing to have electric power for so many reasons. So we can have it supposed that you want to invest on something that at the present moment is still slightly more expensive than digging out gas or oil from underground. Uh, so if we just go for the cheapest source in the short run for the next few years, no more. And if we keep doing that, uh, we are going to destroy ourselves. So that's um, a big problem because it's not a physical problem. It's not a technological problem because we have good technology. It's a problem which has to do with the human mind. Some of us have understood that we have to do this. A lot of people still think honestly that the resources are so large that we don't have to worry about destroying them, which I, I hope they, they understand this point because if they keep 
thinking that we are destroying uh, not just our children, we are destroying ourselves. And so it's a question of obtaining something that we could call consensus on the fact that we have to think a little bit more to the future and a little less to the short-term gains. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Professor Bardi. I hope it was interesting, but I don't know. Thank you. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, the trailer from the film Return to Oz, and John Lennon singing Across the Universe. You also heard the Ross Male Voice Choir singing Leaf from the 1957 recording of Music from the Welsh Mines, and you are now listening to Ray Charles, drowning in his own tears. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>